Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. Hello and welcome to a career profile episode of Head to Toe. I'm your host, Marie McMillan. I am a nurse, a writer, and happy to introduce to you this episode's guest, Anne Richardson. Anne is a board-certified chaplain, a certified spiritual director, a labyrinth facilitator, and poet based in Portland, Oregon. Anne established Nurture Your Journey in 2016 after working in home hospice and the hospital setting. We discuss her career journey, her experience as a chaplain at the bedside, the existence of spirituality in healthcare, and its importance in both patients' and caregivers' lives. Please enjoy our conversation. Okay, welcome to Head to Toe. My name is Marie McMillan. I am the host of this nerdy healthcare podcast. And today we are talking with Anne Richardson, who is a former hospital and hospice chaplain, an expert on grief and loss, and the founder of her own business called Nurture Your Journey, where she helps guide individuals and groups through the grief process. She is also a retreat leader, a labyrinth facilitator, and an award-winning poet. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Did I miss anything? That was a long list. <laughs> it was a long list. Yeah, I do healthcare education. So I'm available to do education in hospitals, at facilities, in workplaces. And I also had a piece recently published in Voice Catcher, which is an online journal related. It's called Beautiful Mask. And it's related to the dying process of my mother. Mm. I'm sorry about your mom. Yeah, we're coming up on the anniversary, actually. It's just about mm-hmm. a week away. Oh. Yeah. My heart goes out to you. And let's talk a little bit about your career kind of in general. I'm going to categorize this under a a career profile episode. So tell me about kind of the genesis of who you were and who you are now and, and how you got from point A to point B. Yeah, good story. So death came to me first when I was 26 years old. That was my father was my first experience up close with death besides pets and the other little losses that come along in life. So when I was 26, I got that call from my mom and was at the emergency room at Legacy Emanuel Hospital, and my father had already died. He'd had his first heart attack before I was two years old and his second when I was eight. So it wasn't like it was unexpected, but it was unexpected. Put grief in the little pocket of my heart and didn't really discuss it. That was normal for my family to do that. Both my parents are English, so stiff upper lip. So what about my life as an accountant at that point? I was married but no children. And had an older brother, and and we just went about life taking care of our mom to make sure she was cared for in her widowhood. Left accounting as that was not my passion, but it was very practical. Still serves me well as I can balance things and keep my house in order that way. Stayed home with my children once I had them. I have a daughter and a son. And did the mom and the PTA thing and all that stuff, all those things. But I've always had a drawn to the spiritual which came in the form of evangelical background to begin with. I grew up in a small town in Oregon, in the Willamette Valley. So was a church girl, and after my father died, and as I was home with my kids, my mom said, you know, you really like the spiritual church stuff, and I really think you're called to seminary, which is fascinating because neither of my parents were religious people. So enrolled in George Fox Seminary. It was George Fox at that time. It's Portland Seminary now. Got a master's degree as well as a certificate in spiritual formation and discipleship and spiritual direction. So lots of hours under my belt and just under three years and member of my church, but not really any jobs per se in spiritual direction. You know, Oregon is more spiritual than religious. Didn't really have anything going. So I had a friend that was training as a chaplain. I thought, well, I'll give it a try, but I don't really like being around sick people, which is kind of ironic. Got an internship at Legacy Emanuel, 
two weeks into it, I go, oh, this is what I'm called to do. Because I never was one of those folks that like to tell you what to believe. And just holding space for people and listening to stories is really what is my passion. So I had the internship there, and there was an opening at the VA. And at that time, Legacy and the VA would meet in the summer and cross-pollinate their, what were called their clinical pastoral education programs. And so Horace Duke was the supervisor at that point. He said, you know, I had someone drop out and have an opening. Would you like to come be a resident? And I jumped at the chance because he was one of the best. He's retired now. So I started my training at the VA and was there for my residency, which is four units of clinical pastoral education known as CPE. And then I did another four units the next year as the first post-traumatic stress disorder and substance abuse fellow. So I did nine units all together. Some people will call that an overachiever. <laughs> I called it a stable job for two years. There you go. <laughs> and with benefits in the VA right. federal system. After I completed that, then I found a job in hospice with a company called Serenity Hospice, which was begun by two young veterans who felt that veterans needed better care at the end of their life. And it was a perfect fit for me at that time. And you worked as a chaplain for them. For them for uh, almost eight years before starting my own business. You started your own business, and we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So let's talk a little bit about your work as both a hospital and a hospice chaplain. And Anne and I kind of talked about these questions beforehand, and I had ideas, and then she was like, well, let's talk about maybe in a different way. So I'm excited to talk kind of back and forth about where this episode is going to go. So the question I had was, what surprised you about people in crisis initially? So as I thought about this question, I realized people tend to go in two directions. There's those who want to drop in and fix and resolve the issue right away. We have a problem. We need to resolve it immediately. And there's no time to make any meaning of what's going on. No time to assess what might be important to hold on to, what memories they might want to make for later, what might bring joy and what might bring pain. It's just a matter of getting through one moment to next. And there's no idea that there might be a new normal after this. And the other direction is that people will go numb. They're just stuck. They can't even make a decision. There's no time to stop and consider what's going on. They can't process what's going on. And so in this moment, the staff is asking for decisions to be made, and those Mm -hmm. people are just stuck. And then you have the people that are wanting to make decisions right away, and maybe there's not enough information for them to make decisions. You've got this two ends, and the staff is kind of on the fulcrum asking for things to happen. This is where I put the staff in for the plug-in for chaplains, because chaplains are really good at holding space for that, for just sitting with people and waiting for a little bit of the story to unfold and Mm -hmm. letting time progress and unfold. As a nurse, I can totally echo that. There are times and spaces where, you know, we would want to devote more time to sitting and and listening to their stories. But in the ICU where I work, it's like, I got to make sure that that person's, you know, getting taken care of from the medical perspective. So I've always really appreciated being able to call the chaplains and say, hey, family's having a rough time or the patient's having a rough time. Like you said, I like the phrase you said, hold space. That's a good way. Yeah. Yeah. And primarily humans want to make meaning of situations. And when you're in crisis you don't realize that you're making meaning even as it unfolds until you go back later. So if you can give people just a little bit of space to say, okay, what's going on here? Then that allows them to come back and maybe not have regrets later. Mm -hmm. To be able to look at those small moments and say, oh, what was someone wearing? If it's a child that's been hurt or injured or is dying, oh, they have their teddy bear with them? That's special. That's precious. What what can I hold on to in this moment? I mean, I still remember the shirt my dad wore when he was on that gurney in the ER. So just making those special, precious moments. So people do tend to go either way. And if we can just 
time stops, let's face it, in those crisis situations. So if we can, as a team, work together to help people in that non-time space to just slow down and breathe, Mm -hmm. I think that's the most important thing we can do. And the other important part is check in with people and see if they have advanced directives. And this is where I do my plug, everybody. Please do. I I, I fully support all the things you're about to say. (laughs) Yes. At any age, please get an advanced directive and then talk about it with those in your family and the person who you sign off on as you want to have be your person. Mm-hmm. to make your decisions. Mm-hmm. And for the layperson listening, an advanced directive is it's sort of it varies state by state, but it's something to definitely look up. You might hear something called an out of hospital do not resuscitate or a DNR or healthcare power of attorney. Those all kind of fall under the same umbrella of advanced directive. There's some good organizations out there that talk about have outlines of discussions. You can start with your family members about what they would want at the end of life. And I'm sure Anne, you know all about that. We'll put links in the show notes. So be sure to check those out too, but yeah. please continue. And and I'll also put a plug in then for what are called death cafes. Mm. And we have them in Portland, PDX death cafes, where you can start having these difficult conversations before you ever have to have a difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we come into crisis situations never having talked about, well, if I really am in a car accident and I'm in a vegetative state, Mm -hmm. what would you want? And if you've had those conversations already, then... Mm-hmm. It's never going to be easy, but you can make that conversation having already talked to your loved one about, okay, we've already talked about this mm-hmm. and you can make it with a clearer conscience. Mm-hmm. So, Looking back at the start of your career and how far you've come, talk about what you felt in the beginning as the novice practitioner, what you feel now. Has it changed at all or has it evolved? Are you surprised about the same things or do you feel like nothing surprises you anymore? Well, there'll always be surprises because we're humans and we all have our own journeys and our own things will set us off, myself included. I mean, I've got my own experiences inside me and things will trigger me unexpectedly. In the beginning of my career as a chaplain, because a lot of clinical pastoral education, half of it is delving into our own inner stuff, Mm. which is, I think, the unique thing about CPE is part of it's on the floor work, part of it is the didactics and... Uh, learning about family systems and ethics and all that. But the other half is sitting one-on-one with your supervisor and sitting in group and just like digging at each other. So you did a case study and you were with Mr. X and you seem like you're really angry at Mr. X. What's really going on? Oh, he reminds me of your grandfather. Okay. So early on in my career, I would come out of a room going, God, that guy's a real jerk, whatever. Well, that guy's not a real jerk. The guy's in a lot of pain. He's trying to make meaning of what's going on in his situation. And it was my response to him that was the issue. So the farther I've gone in my career, I've gotten a lot wiser and less judgmental. Matter of fact, I hold everything much more looser than I ever did when I first started. So that's kind of my mantra is we all come by our way of being honestly. We don't come into this world with all our behaviors and all of our beliefs. We gather those along as we come through our life. So if someone needs to cope by being really demanding, there's probably a reason for it. They don't know any other way to get their needs met. Mm-hmm. And so when you hold those things loosely, and, and then I know it's not all about me, probably the biggest change mm-hmm. for me. The hospital setting is kind of a mecca of human life and death. And I know you said that you, you worked in that a long time ago. Hospice is, I mean, it's more of a philosophy than in a, an actual location, but people can get healthcare through hospice and wherever they are, whether it's at home or a facility or somewhere else. So you were saying that you have more memories from your hospice work as a chaplain. What stories from your chaplaincy in general stick with you as your career has progressed? One of my very first experiences, ICU at Emanuel 
a gentleman that was in ICU and he was a flagger and he'd been hit by a car. Someone had didn't slow down and pay attention and sat with his widow as they talked about removing life support. And that story still sits with me, the agony of her having to decide. He was in his mid-50s, so not much older than me, and having to just come to terms with that. One day you're healthy, standing at the side of the road doing a job, and the next day you're in the hospital and your life is coming to an end and the impact on the family. And even today, whenever I am driving and I come to a construction scene, of course, I slow way down, I wave at the flagger, I offer a silent prayer that they are safe, and I thank them for what they do. So slow down for flaggers. <laughs> That's one of the most dangerous jobs out there. PSA. It is. So that is an experience that lingers. As a labyrinth facilitator, when I did my work with veterans, especially those with the moral injury and the post-traumatic stress, I did three labyrinth walks in my time at the VA, and I remember a veteran in one of my groups walked the labyrinth. And with moral injury, a lot of times veterans hang on to that, thinking it's the only way they can honor their battle buddies. They take on total responsibility. They have to lead a life of pain. And for this gentleman, as he walked the labyrinth, he realized he held a rock in his hand. I had those available. And he realized that to honor them, actually, he released it in the center and was able to walk back out because they asked him to know, you need to live a joy-filled life to honor us, not a life of pain. And so just, it's not always about sadness or death. It's also sometimes about joy, about seeing people come through something to the other side. So those are some of the experiences that stick with me. I like that story about the veteran and the labyrinth. Can you dumb it down for people out there who don't know what a labyrinth is? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I think it's cool. My church does it. For those of you guys out there who don't know what it is, you should go check out a labyrinth experience. But yeah, if someone says, what are they talking about? Sorry, yes. No, it's okay. That's okay. So a labyrinth is an ancient archetype, but you can physically walk one. It is a path that is a circular path that winds one way in to the center, and then you follow the same path back out. It is not to be confused with a maze, so there are no choices about turning in and hitting a dead end. That's just one way. One way in. So you can't do it wrong. You might get turned around, but life's kind of like that. Sometimes you think you're going one direction, and all of a sudden you get turned around. And it's two-dimensional. It's usually something that's either rolled out on a floor or inscribed in the ground somehow, and you're looking down as you're walking the path that is set out in front of you. Yes. Awesome. And that's very ancient practice, isn't it? They're over 5,000 years old, and there's several varieties, I guess would be a way to say it, but yeah. Cool. I feel like they should put one in, in hospital settings. <laughs> you know, they you have know. them in. Do they? Uh, Legacy Meridian Park has one. Oh, neat. Yeah. That's in southwest Portland, for those yes. of you listening. Yeah, listeners out there, let me know if you work in a hospital or a healthcare setting with a labyrinth. That's cool. Send me a picture. Yeah. <laughs> and put it on the And if Facebook. you go to the labyrinth locator, you can put in your zip code and find a labyrinth near you. Oh, neat. Check the show notes for the link, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on to things that sort of attach to hospitals and healthcare settings. And this is just a personal like thing that I want to talk about is I'm fascinated by hospital chapels and churches attached because historically, I feel like hospitals were mostly run by the clergy. And before nursing was really formalized into a layperson training, I just kind of wonder if you have any personal experience with chapels or been inspired by specific ones or how you've seen them used in healthcare facilities facilities today, especially in places like Oregon or the Northwest, where, like you said, we're more spiritual than we are religious. I think we're probably one of the least formalized religious areas in the country. So I just, Mm -hmm. the lingering, you know, existence of buildings or rooms that are dedicated to what some people would say religion doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, you can't go in there. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. 
So you're right, when they were originally part of the institution, because most hospitals were Lutheran or Catholic or out mm-hmm. of a different Protestant tradition, even those hospitals that are out of the Catholic or Protestant tradition will have a more secular chapel area. Mm-hmm. And even OHSU has what are called sacred spaces, meditation rooms, quiet rooms for people to go to. Legacy Salmon Creek has their own chapel area, which is just called an interfaith chapel. Cool. They are often used now just as a quiet space to get away from the activity of the hospital. They often have different books of sacred texts. They might have, say, for your Muslim patients and families, kneeling pads Mm -hmm. so they can kneel and do their daily prayers. Mm -hmm. So just an assortment of things for people to use to just get away, uh, maybe a place for families to go and be in the quiet and have an intimate conversation without the beep and buzz and whirl of all that's going on in the hospital. At the VA, since it was an older VA, they had a much more formal one, like they had a Catholic chapel when you could still do all that in the VA. And they would hold their quarterly remembrance services there. So they can be used for a variety of things. But now I think they've moved towards just a place of quiet and meditation and prayer, if that's what people want, but more open. Mm -hmm. Have you ever performed any marriage ceremonies or baptisms or anything like that in the hospitals? Yeah, I didn't do marriages, but I do... Actually, I did some more in hospice. But chaplains do do those Mm -hmm. marriages and baptisms and all sorts of rites and rituals as people request. Mm -hmm. So, absolutely. Let's discuss misconceptions about spiritual care in today's society. We sort of alluded to it a little bit, you and I working in the Pacific Northwest, where you might walk into a room and as a nurse, I might ask the patient, it's part of my admission question, mm-hmm. you know, to say, do you have any spiritual care needs while you're here in the hospital? And common phrase I hear is, oh, no, I don't do God. Thanks. <laughs> and so that's an impression not only from patients, but you had also said, let's talk about the misconceptions of spiritual care by hospital staff as well. So I'm wondering... What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So a couple streams. First for the Northwest and that, um, and I'll give you a good antidote, is walk into the room and, oh, I don't need a chaplain. I don't do the God thing. And I, since I had such a great supervisor, you don't take it personally. I'd say, good, I'm tired of being a chaplain. Can I just sit and chat and shoot the breeze with you? Ah. And sure enough, we'd sit and I'd say, what do you like to do? I like to go fishing. Really tell me about fishing and nature and that. And we had like this long half hour conversation about how he likes to fish. And oh, do you ever imagine like you're back fishing now when you're in the hospital? Well, yeah, sometimes. Well, I didn't have to directly say to him, so when you're feeling anxious and tense, can you pretend like you're fishing? And isn't that a spiritual experience for you? Well, we had a spiritual conversation. We just didn't name it that. Right. Chaplain's just a word. (laughs) Chaplain's just a word. It is. And that's what we're trained to do is to listen to the story because really our stories are sacred. And that's what we're trained to listen and to hear the story and then kind of ask for the meaning to come out of it through our questions to guide that, to not necessarily tell people what their story means because they Mm. get to figure that out themselves. Right. And we have the time and the training to do that. So to help people find their own meaning in life, and for some people, it is a deeply religious, spiritual thing. I would, I sat with a gal in hospice, and she kept saying, I'm ready to go see my mother and my father and my brothers and my sisters, and her body just wasn't ready to go, and it was months. She, I'd come see her, and she'd be sitting in her rocking chair, and she actually graduated off hospice and then came back on. <laughs> oh, wait, so she was, like, ready to die, and then her body was like, nope. <laughs> and her, But her religion, man, her she was a faithful person in, in her tradition. She was, like, ready to go to heaven to see her husband and all her family, and mm-hmm. her body 
body wasn't ready to go there. Well, she graduated. Yeah, this just wasn't her time yet. This wasn't her time yet. So I was sit. I sat with her in that space because that was what was important to her. Mm. But for the spiritual aspect, even if people say they aren't spiritual, because that again is a word mm-hmm. and it has a lot of baggage in it for a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. But if you ask people about their families or do they like to read or whatever, you know, what is it that gives us meaning and purpose in life? And that is really the core definition of spirituality. What gives your life meaning and purpose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So maybe as the staff person frames the questions, as you're here today, you know, where are you finding your meaning and purpose in this hospital state? What's maybe troubling you? Mm-hmm. You brought up misconceptions by staff of spiritual care. Mm-hmm. We all bring our own baggage with us. Just like if you say to the patient, do you want to see a chaplain? And they're going to think of every story they've heard about a priest in the paper or sure. every pastor they've ever had or sure. good or bad. Right. The same thing's going to be with the staff person. And if they don't like the particular chaplain, maybe on the floor that night, I don't want that chaplain to go see this patient. I really like this patient or whatever reason. Mm -hmm. We all bring our own baggage in with us in the room. Or maybe you have a very spiritual or very religious nurse or something and they want to do the prayers. If the patient wants a particular prayer and they want that nurse to do it, there's no rule book. I always say everybody's a a spiritual generalist. Mm -hmm. We're the spiritual specialists. Right. So there's no rule that says somebody else can't do a prayer or something if asked and if you're comfortable. That's interesting you bring that up. I mean, in I think nursing and medical education programs, they talk a lot about like sort of the fine balance between putting importance on your own values, but at the same time respecting the patients and not impressing your own values upon somebody else when it perhaps is not wanted on their sides. At the same time, respecting your own beliefs. And that can get tricky, I think, and really an end of life scenario specifically. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of nurses go through moral distress when it comes to, I mean, you talked about that lady who like, she was ready, but her body wasn't ready. I feel like the situation that practitioners, at least in end of life scenarios and you know, ER, ICU, hospice, sometimes it's, I find that and it's just my personal experience that it's the other way around, that it's more the patient and the family are, are not ready, but the body's ready. And that creates this distressing moment for the healthcare team of what are we doing? I feel like I'm hurting a person or, you know, just, you know, our reality and our beliefs aren't aligning with theirs, but to what end can we impress our own knowledge and values upon the patient? So going into care conferences, mm-hmm. especially in, in the hospital and in hospice, mm-hmm. but I'm waiting for God to have offer a miracle. AM pack. what is a miracle? Tell me more about what a miracle means to you. And the chaplain can often ask into those questions after listening, and we are allowed to be the dumb one in the room, if that makes sense, because we don't always know all the jargon. Mm -hmm. So I would sit and watch the body language, watch every member of the family, which one's the quiet one, which one's the speaker. And we could say, so I'm a little confused, but I'm hearing this doctor say this and this doctor say that and wondering what the family is understanding right now. And then you make room for that especially if everybody's really busy and the energy's building. And you can slow the pace with your language, take a breath, Mm -hmm. and say, wow, I hear you saying you want a miracle. Can you say a little bit more what a miracle might look like? Okay, oh, I hear the doctor saying this is what's happening to their body. Okay, and so you can just start saying really simple things and try to bring things closer together. And then later outside you might talk about miracle So I hear you saying God's really powerful. So if you took your loved one off the respirator and God wanted to perform a miracle, what might that look like? Mm -hmm. So they might start breathing again without the respirator. So you kind of start to shift the language and the mindset. It doesn't always work. 
Yeah. But it opens possibility. Well, I appreciate you and all of those out there who take that job out of my hands. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then our other job is to be there for the staff. Yeah. Because, yeah, that's it's you know what's happening to the body. And you've seen the story played out hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of times. It doesn't have a pretty ending sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And we'll get back to staff burnout yeah. in a little bit. You wrote in our email conversations a sentence I kind of want to visit with you a little bit. You said, this is often why chaplains don't even get referrals. I feel like there's... <laughs> I feel like there's more to that sentence, like perhaps a history or an anecdote or two, or just, I don't feel like that's widespread, at least in my practice. I feel like they're very welcome. So I, I, I don't have experience with that notion. So I'm curious. Yeah. So for my colleagues, there's, I think there's a lot of training that needs to be done, or especially with newer, younger doctors that are coming through training about what the chaplain role is, that we aren't coming in to preach or teach or pray. That we are coming in to listen to stories, that we are coming in to support staff, that we are an essential part of the care team, not just an outlier, that we are included in care conferences, that we can be included in rounds, should be included in rounding. And that hasn't always been the case. So that's just being part of the care team, formulating those admission questions like, how do you get the referrals? We're not billable. I did not know that. Yeah, that's my understanding. I know we're not billable as far as hospice. We're required but we're not billable. That's interesting. So oftentimes, budget-wise, we're understaffed. So some hospitals, they cut back on the chaplains. So even if you start getting a lot of referrals, how do you see everybody and give the time needed and the budget? Mm. Who's going to get cut? So we start to advocate for ourselves and people get to know us and then, you know. Right. So it's more of an education hurdle. Yeah. There's a lot of research being done now. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's actually called Transforming Chaplaincy Research. I have a friend at the VA that's just completing her. She'll graduate this spring. So there's a lot of research in the benefits of chaplaincy and spiritual care to patient satisfaction upon discharge. And everybody likes a good survey. (laughs) <laughs> everybody does data 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 so there is actually you know spiritual care we always think we're all about the mystery and all that but it is quantifiable and you know it's quantifiable data runs the world yeah, and budgets so. <laughs> yeah unfortunately but yes yeah let's talk a little bit about your work now as a i don't know if grief counselor is the right title that's an amorphous word i don't know that spiritual guide it. yeah is the next word i had down that's a good guru word um yeah. And then also Free an artist. Companion. Yeah, writer. Yeah. Or a writer, artist, that's a good one. So as I left the formal hospice world, and part of that journey was because, like in the hospital, there's lots of charting and mm-hmm. lots of I's to dot and T's to cross. And after seven and a half years of that, well, my own mom had dementia and was declining, and I found myself going into memory care places and going, oh, is that going to be my mom? that going to be my mom? I started to burn out myself. And I also found I was charting more and more and spending less and less time with inpatient care. So I found myself wanting to do more creative work, and I'd already started Nurture Your Journey doing workshops, and I had the training in spiritual direction. So I decided to leave the formal world of hospice and start a business kind of part-time so I actually got a job at New Seasons as a cashier all right (laughs) part-time which is a fun gig but very exhausting and I did that for almost a year in which time my mom actually died which was itself a totally different journey she came on to hospice but being the daughter and not the chaplain was it was an amazing experience I'm glad I was able to have that experience be with my mom so about four months after she died I realized I was way too permeable to be on the front end of a grocery store and I decided it was now or never. So I left New Seasons, and I am now full-time into Nurture Your Journey. So I offer grief and loss, one-on-one spiritual direction, and life transformation, because loss isn't just about death. 
loss accompanies us all through life. And whether it's the loss of a pet, change of job, even marriage, you leave behind your single life for your new life. Old losses come up. I didn't realize the loss of my father would come up when my mom died, which I had hidden away for 32 years after he died. So I sit with people in the space and provide sacred space for them to listen. And as an intuitive person, I just listen to the storyline and then I'll ask questions in. And then people uncover their own stories, their own truths, and hold space for that. And then I do the workshops. And they're a combination of might offer a poem that someone's written and have people write out a prompts, or we might do a collage based on a prompt for the first couple of hours and then introduce people to the labyrinth. So it kind of starts in the head and we work our way down into the body and the labyrinth is a grounding experience. Then they walk the labyrinth to process the grief and then we come back together. And what's most essential is providing safe space for people in the group. People are allowed to share or not share whatever they're experiencing and make sure they go out of this, out of the room in safety. That's the workshop piece of my individual piece. Cool. And do you work just locally or do you do perhaps teleconferencing with people across the country or is it, it's more of that you need to be in the person, be with that person? I could do spiritual direction by Zoom. Okay. Yeah. I haven't yet, but I could. Hmm. Just, yeah. Everything is all about tele-whatever these, these days, telemedicine. Days so is. I was just curious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yes, I, I, could, I didn't I mean that, that to be critical in any way. No, <laughs> Sorry, no, no. Labyrinth would be a little, <laughs> workshops would be a little trickier. But like I say, this is my first year. So everything is like open to expanding. Fascinating. We talked a little bit about healthcare burnout. You've had ex- mm-hmm. personal experience of that. I've had personal experience of that. Every healthcare provider listening has experience with burnout. And especially with perhaps losing patients and watching families lose patients and the repetition of it. And, and that's the concept that I kind of want to zone in on and that I see all the time is where nurses, therapists, doctors, chaplains, anybody in the hospital will spend time taking care of a patient. Inevitably, they will pass and it, it can be a good thing, a bad thing, a beautiful thing, a terrible thing, a combination of all those things. And it's just a whirlwind of emotion. And as a bedside nurse, me being a staff nurse, you know, taking care of that patient through all that is it's one of my greatest joys in my career. And I love providing that care to that person. I think a lot of nurses and physicians will agree with me on that. But to go through that, it's so saturated with emotion. If you watch that family and that person go through the transition and the body leaves the room, housekeeping comes in, they clean it, and you got to get another patient. And sometimes it's within your 12-hour shift that you have to do this turnover. And people who work in the emergency department see it even quicker. You have to go from room to room and you just have to reset, reset, reset. And I think it's, it's definitely an acquired, learned skill. But I find the longer I work, the lasting impression of that is finding people harden themselves a little bit or seeing the different ways that healthcare providers deal with that. And so, I don't know, I'm rambling now, but I guess my question is, what is your recommendation for healthcare workers experiencing this type of burnout? I guess I should say burnout related to experiencing grief in their workplace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Plus there's any grief you bring from outside. Like you said. Yeah. So if you've had a failed marriage, death, suicide, anything in your life. So there are going to be some patients that touch you closer than others. It'd be nice if administration could say, wow, what's going on? Let's have a quiet space you can go to after an especially difficult death. You can take maybe a piece of paper you can write, some sort of rituals or rocks or something you can put in a fountain that says, wow, this person really touched me. I need to do something with this. Or weekly meetings, something where you could recognize. You know, and everybody's going to have different people that touch them. Some people are just going to 
float off your back. That's where chaplains could come in to offer some ritual space. That's why I think rituals are so important. And they're going to look different for different people. I always like the stone thing because I think a lot of people like something that's tactile. And sometimes you keep a stone with you. One suggestion would be maybe just to have a bowl of rock somewhere, maybe behind the front desk in the ER or in the nurse's station or something. And if there's someone that's particularly touched you, you just get a stone and maybe just write their first initial on it with a Sharpie. And maybe you just keep that in your pocket for the rest of the shift. Maybe you take it home and you have somewhere in your garden you put it or in a special bowl. And then when you're ready to release it, okay, I'm done. I'm done grieving that person. I'm going to go put it in some water in a puddle or in a stream or somewhere special for you. I'm ready to let go of them now. But it's some way to just take it, you've held it, you've embodied it, you've released it. Mm-hmm. And everybody can figure out their own routine. And then, then there's something to do with community, too. I think it needs to be a combination of individual and community. Mm-hmm. And people need to have a choice whether they join in the community one. Because if you're too permeable, then you're going to be a bag of wet noodles all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not, you're not going to last long at all. But right. if you're too hard, then you're not going to do your best job either because you're just going to be like a stone wall and you're not going to be there for your patients or your coworkers. So it's finding that balance. And I think establishing some sort of a ritual for yourself as an individual and maybe something you can come up with as a team. Mm-hmm would be helpful and that's just one example the stone yeah example that's that you had example. it's formalized like you said va they have quarterly remembrance services mm-hmm. for patients who have died. have, have died mm-hmm. I, I know some children's hospitals have similar types of annual things i think there's definitely room for improvement probably across the board not just in this area of the country but probably across the country and if you're out there listeners you have thoughts on that you know feel free to comment or or email What would you say to someone interested in a career in spiritual care in the healthcare setting? The most important thing is to look inward, check motivation, and be willing to dive deep into your own stuff. Because to be a healthy spiritual care provider, you got to know what makes you tick. Because I know when I'm in the hospital, and I know, you know, most chaplains are pretty good, but there's some out there that I wouldn't want to come in my room. (laughs) If we're being honest, just like any profession, there's really good ones, and there's some that are, you know, it's the bell curve, right? Not everybody gels well with one another, yeah, that's for sure. So, you know, they're, they're going to come in and just pray over you or whatever, and those are not the ones I want in my room. So if you want to get into spiritual care, you need to be willing to dig deep into yourself. You have your own belief system, but when you're in the room with somebody else, you got to not want that person to have your belief system. You have to be there in their belief system, whatever that is. You're not there to persuade. You're there to be present. And that's important. If you have any other motivation, then you need to go do something else. And then you got to be willing to do the training. The schoolwork and the... Mm-hmm. What is the entry-level education required? It's almost always a master's degree. Uh, there are very few exceptions, like the uh, LDS church doesn't do seminary. And there are LDS chaplains. And that's changing. The Associated Professional Chaplains is the primary board-certifying body. But they tend to follow... The mainstream, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist are your main endorsing bodies under them. Mm -hmm. For people that aren't under that umbrella, you might have a hard time getting certified endorsement. So be advised Wiccans out there. Yes. Uh, (laughs) So there are some new 
board certifying more looser. You still need the masters. You still need to get the education. But there are some looser endorsing bodies out there that are starting to pop up. So there is some change. There is some growth in what chaplaincy looks like. But you still need to have that strong spiritual educational base. Okay. And then from there, it sounds like there's internship residency programs that might last a year or two. Yeah, you need to have that training in family systems and ethics and get on the floor clinical work. Just like you're, it's a profession, just like social work and psychiatry and psychology and doctors and all that. Most definitely, they don't just, your clergy isn't just going to come in off the church and, hey, I want to be a chaplain and all of a sudden get credentialed. Matter of fact, we have to have 50 hours of continuing ed every year. So along with your brand new Nurture Your Journey, almost a year old here, your own business, kudos. It's very cool of you to just be like, I'm going to do it. Anybody out there just on the cusp of being like, I should really do X, Y, Z. What is your advice to those people saying, you just, you just got to make it happen? Believe in what you offer. And I really do believe in what I offer. Don't be afraid to fail. So I'm almost, I'm in my 60th year. So I figured, hey, I'm almost 60, right? So I'm going to rock this year. And I am fortunate that I don't have any family at home. My kids are all grown, so I'm not responsible for anybody but me. Mm-hmm. So that is that is obviously an asset. Helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's a little helpful. Don't have any debt, so that you know that that's a good part. But you do have to believe in what you're doing, and you have to be willing to put yourself out there and just trust and let go. Let go of outcomes. So I thought when I started this, it might look like something else, and it's turning in a different direction. So I don't know. I am going to go to the United Kingdom for eight weeks, starting in April 14th, on a spiritual, ancestral, labyrinth journey. I will be blogging, and we will see how that unfolds, too. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners about what you do, who you are, chaplaincy, anything we've talked about, any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Such a big question. I know. Sorry. Like I said, I'm in my I'm in this third thirty year cycle as it's called. So I'm just feel like as a woman I'm just coming into my own and owning my voice, which is I just find really exciting. And just I'm just ignited these days. I'm just on fire. So that's so awesome. <laughs> and I just have a passion for hearing people's stories. And I think if that's the one thing we can do for each other in humanity is to listen to each other's stories. That is the ultimate gift we can give to each other. Absolutely. 100%. I agree. Thank you so much, Anne. Tell me a little bit about the poem you're going to read. Okay. So in helping our staff, when I worked at Serenity two years ago, you might remember the major snowstorm we had. And we even in hospice, you rarely don't go, you know, you got to be there for your patients there at home in that. For those of you not from the Willamette Valley, (laughs) when it (laughs) snows here in the valley, things shut down. Like we're talking like half an inch of snow. We just, school's canceled. People from the Midwest like laugh at us for for this. That was a really big snowstorm. But that was a big snowstorm. (laughs) We're talking like feet of snow. So then things were really shut down. And I remember that. I stayed at the hospital one or two nights because it was hard to get home. And it was a big snowstorm for us. Other people will laugh. But people had to stay in hospitals and and hospices, like you said, and just to to cover the Mm -hmm. 24 hours. And when you have home patients, sometimes they're out in the boonies. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we had permission to stay home and, you know, just make phone calls, but we're basically off. As a poet, I would either send, often send poems to my uh, weekly poems to the whole company. We're a small company. And I would also write poems and send them out to people. And so um, as for fun, I said, hey, send everybody, if you're interested, just send me a line of what you're experiencing from the snowstorm. And so I had several people collaborate and they sent me lines and then I put them together in what I call a collaborative poem called January Snowstorm. So I'm just 
going to read that since we're, uh, I think, the Midwest and everybody's in the cold. It seems appropriate. So this is January Snowstorm, a collaborative poem by employees of Serenity Hospice. Cauliflowered trees, frosted crisp white foliage, crunchy footprints in snow. Welcome forced time to stop, time to reflect, pray, bake, deliver hot chocolate to children sledding. The cold makes me feel lonely for the past, youthful and free, pure, beautiful, nostalgic childhood memories full of adventure and joy. The serenity we find when snow falls depends on the soil in which we have planted our heart. Powdered sugar snow on trees, bushes, grass. When sun sparkles on snow, it's like jewels that reflect sun and rainbow colors. At night, the snow illuminates with ghostly light. Trees luxurate in the afterglow, mystical, silent, beautiful. Wonderland, a magical hassle, sitting snug in my castle of white at last. But my professional self is restless and worried. I calm myself and relax into the moment and thank God for the phone. Pretty, but I'm over this. How efficiently rain manages snow. Dappled sun shines through the barren trees, shivering only sound and echo. Thank you, Ann Richardson. Thank you. And there you have it. You can find all of Anne's work and contact info in the show notes and more at nurtureyourjourney.net. As always, I welcome your feedback and thoughts on the show. Listeners, email me at macmillanpages at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Or leave a voicemail on the podcast feedback line at 503-512-0185. I would love to hear from you. Thank you to Wesley Price for the intro-outro music, and thank you to Tara Boschel for help with editing. And once again, thank you to Ann Richardson for being the show's guest. I'm Marie McMillan. Until next time, take care.